नमस्ते एवरीवन वेलकम टू द चार वर्क पॉडकास्ट दिस इज योर होस्ट कुशल मेहरा माय गेस्ट टुडे इज आरता मोहिनी आरता मोहिनी इज द रिसर्च डायरेक्टर ऑफ द इंस्टीट्यूट फॉर पीस एंड डिप्लोमेसी अ रिसर्च फेलो एट द सेंटर फॉर द स्टडी ऑफ स्टेटमेंटशिप इन वाशिंगटन डीसी एज वेल एज एन इलेक्टेड मेंबर ऑफ द एकेडमी ऑफ फिलोसफी एंड लेटर्स आरता मोहिनी इज एन इंटरनेशनल पॉलिटिकल थियोरिस्ट एंड अ रिविजनल स्कॉलर ऑफ नेचर एंड मॉडर्निटी आरता वेलकम uh glad to be here kushal thank you for having me so uh, to give everybody a brief background of how i found out about arta so i get these uh, weekly emails or every day i think emails from unheard.com where one of uh, your essays uh, which was written on the may 20th 2023 it was titled how america weaponized the west unity is an illusion designed to prevent a european slip came up i read it and i absolutely loved it and i shared it on social media and then i started looking for you on social media whether you exist there or not and that's when i dm'd you i really like talking to you and here we are so but why did you write this uh, essay what what was the basic premise if uh, maybe we can start over there what was the premise behind this um so th- the first sort of i have been dealing with the question of sort of what the challenge or what the uh paradigm shift uh, brought by this uh, war in ukraine has been uh, that has uh, to me uh, the ukraine war is more than just the local geopolitical conflict because countries around it uh both especially in Europe and in the western world uh uh treat you know treated and uh re- receive it in ways that makes it uh into an existential conflict and uh, the fate of the world sort of depends on it and that makes for uh different kinds of decision making now for this paper specifically it was actually inspired by um sort of thinking about what uh, what what is macron's position and what why was there the controversy as it was when he visited uh china and uh, uh he uh you know tried to make a case for european strategic autonomy um and it got uh, a frenzied backlash let's say um and it was uh, even in europe itself you know or, um the uh you know Ursula uh, von der Leyen she was there as well with him and she had a very different sort of perspective on China so there there seemed to be a division in sort of european politics as to how to handle china now um china is far away from europe it's not uh as as uh, central to european psyche uh as let's say russia has been so um what is going on there and a lot of it has to do with the united states and the way that that europe and european leaders think that they need to sort of toe toe a certain line with the united states um to get uh, the sort of security benefits of being parts of part of the essentially a us led alliance uh called nato and uh the, those are sort of the divisions and if you look at the, then i try to sort of go deeper into what are the um the drivers of of these different uh positions on on China and different positions um that one can see uh behind the background of the all the you know western unity nato solidarity you know the west is all of a sudden uh baptized again into the waters of of uh, you know uh, a new righteousness um so when you dig further and you see that the, the question of you know strategic autonomy uh, even though uh, France under Macron or Macron himself sort of uh, casts it as a question about China per se. Uh it's a question that's much deeper. 
And um, I think you can see actually that there are different blocks and uh, different kinds of being in the worlds, uh, to use a Heideggerian language, different kinds of ontological security frameworks that exist as the European uh, leaders are thinking about how to deal with the Russia question, the Ukraine question, and the China question. All of it predicated on the big question that is often not mentioned, which is sort of what should be our relationship with the United States. So uh, we can get into it further, of course, but the, uh, the, the general premise is that there is not, first of all, the idea of the West itself uh, is, is an illusion, hasn't existed in that way. And, and, and this is both the listeners uh, from, you know, from Iran to China to uh, India to uh, Putin, right? That he loves to use the word collective West, use it. But they have internalized the sort of Western category that, um, you know, in many ways hasn't existed, um, you know, since uh, at least the fall of the you know, Christendom. So, so you have a different uh, world today, which is much more uh, regional, uh, not only around the world, which is multipolar now, but in Europe itself. And the different sort of cultural pedigrees, strategic cultures, uh, histories, um, and perceptions of threat that these different regions have makes for different kinds of, uh, you know, understanding of national interests, which means that they will have different kinds of um, uh, policies and priorities. Um, this should be reasonable to most people, but it creates, a, you know, when we leave the realm of geopolitics and enter the realm of ideology, uh, bursting the bubble of ideology becomes uh, kind of a hard business. So finally, I would just end this sort of first question by just reiterating the point that the, both the Western uh, idea of unity, which is predicated on the Western uh, world that's Europe plus uh, Great Britain, the Anglosphere, United States and Canada, plus uh, some um, you know, countries uh, such as Japan sometimes are, are sort of added in as part of the uh, liberal international order. But that kind of the West has a lot of, uh, there are a lot of underlying schisms um, within that, and that's an illusion. And the idea of sort of Russia and Russia invasion was one um, stimulant, let's say, for recreating uh, a, collect a collective uh, paranoia, uh, a collective reanimation of um, of Cold War mentality that was directed towards the Soviet Union in the past. Now it could have be galvanized uh, against Putin, against Russia, the, the personal evil of Putin, and therefore. Uh, it can allow for a nice binary black and white Manichaean framing, which then justifies our unity. And then I would also go further and say, not only does the West, uh, not only does the West not exist, but also um, the, uh, the 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 entire sort of premise of um, even the the way that we think about, let's say, the uh, or Macron wanted to, to think about all of European security in terms of the EU is increasingly problematic because EU itself is now uh, expanded uh, to include too many countries that might have different understandings when it comes to their strategic priorities. And when you want to set an agenda that has to encompass all of Europe, those uh, different uh, national and regional priorities uh, make, um, make sort of having a cohesive, coherent uh, foreign policy strategy for the EU uh, increasingly problematic. So um, 
I can't stop there, but we can talk about the different regions that is emerging from this, uh, not in the short term, but in the medium term afterwards. <clears throat> so I actually want to focus and circle back on this. When you talk about that the concept of the West itself is an illusion, and in your, in your essay, you use... Um, a specific word in quotes, you call it a NATO-centric approach. Now, in light of Brexit and many other things, uh, well, well, would and, and I also want to connect it to another paper that you talk about the middle powers in the multipolar world, uh, where you talk about civilizational states and a lot of uh, middle powers tend to be civilizational states where they have a working framework. If I understood your paper right, they have certain values that they get attached to and their worldview stems from those values. And, and I kind of understand where you're coming from because India itself claims to be a living, breathing civilization for at least 6,000 years where India says we are a civilizational state. Now, in that in that sense, isn't the Western bloc also a civilizational state in many ways, Arthur? Um, that's that. I mean, that's a that's a good question. Um, there is, um, I would say, for example, that there, there certainly has been a civilizational element to the West as such, uh, and that you know, and that's why I mentioned since the since Christendom. Uh, the, the problem is that um, there are really, and, and even the, in the middle power uh, paper that, that we wrote uh, for the Institute for Peace and Diplomacy, um, there are there were different sort of, it wasn't, you can essentially, at that point, you can start talking about a world civilization. Because if you're, if you're there are different kinds of um, uh, historical sort of uh, pathways that go into the West, and uh, that you know we we have seen, and usually this has been the difference between the Catholic and the Protestant West. Um, usually, it's sort of seen in terms of the North-West align, uh, sorry, North-South alignment in 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 Europe. Um, so you, we see that the ideas of uh, civilizations exist. There is a continental idea, I think, of civilization and focused on Western Europe. Um, and that has a different uh, historical, um, uh, a different historical context, a different uh, embeddedness, a different uh, uh, cultural pedigree than the Anglosphere, um, and uh, also different from uh, uh, Central and Eastern Europe. So uh, you see, essentially, what we call the West. I would say it's it's composed of three civilizations, not one. Um, one is the Anglosphere. I think Anglosphere is very consistent in what it, what it is. There there might be some disagreements in terms of like you know political uh, minor differences in terms of the political system whether we like to have a monarchy or constitutional monarchy or a constitutional republic. But essentially, America and and Britain are in many ways connected culturally and civilizationally, and which, which actually was one of the instigators of Brexit uh, for some of the advocates of it. So. We can put Anglosphere to the side. We can think about continental uh, Europe, uh, and Europe, in, in that sense, doesn't include Russia, uh, and that didn't include most of Eastern Europe. Uh, Europe would be uh, sort of the uh, Western Europeans, from essentially cored on uh, Germany and France and Italy to, to an extent. Uh, that's the that's the sort of philosophical. Uh, milieu that you have where a lot of sort of like a continental uh, political philosophy, for example, uh, is is thought about and, and, and comes to be. And, and then obviously you have um, 
you have Russia as a separate uh, civilizational sphere, and you have uh, uh, sort of in the, you, there are sort of uh, borderlands of civilizations, and those actually, if you uh, look at the Middle Powers uh, paper, those are the interesting areas because all conflicts happen at the borderlands of civilizations. Now, I want to reiterate that this is what I'm what I'm uh, sort of presenting here is the, the picture is different from let's say someone like Samuel Huntington's um, because uh, it. Although I use the word civilizations, um, and uh, although I am um, very sort of aware of of the dynamics of civilizations and and the uh, reality of civilization as a as a uh, as a priority as a present you know as as an entity that takes precedence on the nation state, um, civilizations are not essentialistic. They are not an absolute category that exists from 6,000 years ago the way that they are today. So for example, again, your question of Western civilization, um, the West has been going through different phases and sometimes the uh, new civilizations are birthed and, or, or some civilizations collapse into one. Um, but in general, you see patterns. Uh, that's the, uh, you know, the patterns of continuity and uh, a sort of a homeodynamic continuity uh, exists within civilizations. And that's not uh, essentially and intrinsically tied to religion. This is one of, I think, Huntington's mistakes in thinking about uh, civilizations. He, he divided the world into essentially the world's biggest religions. Um, religions capture only one snapshot of, a, of a, a dynamic and alive culture. And it comes from a certain universalism that's inherent in a lot of Western thinking, even the civilizationalist uh, brand, um, which believes that at the end of the day, one thing needs to dominate. Uh, the, everything happens at the plane of the world, and then uh, you know we need to dominate that world. So the idea of just modus vivendi of all these um, civilizations existing um, and not interfering in the affairs of one another, and not actually you know being premised for um, and directed and, and predisposed to uh, world domination because of anarchy, as uh, uh, you know, structural realism tells us, um, is I think um, I think it's it's a it's it's a false notion. Um, civilizations can exist, in fact, together. The world of civilizations is not an anarchic world, um, and uh, it but it is a multipolar, multiplex polycentric world, which is not uniform. And that is not the same as anarchy. So I, I, I consider myself a realist, but my kind, kind of uh, realism uh, tries to broaden realism outside of some of its utilitarian uh, materialist sort of framings that sees everything as this sort of one system and think about different systems. And essentially civilizational uh, architectures are, we're talking about multiple systems, not one system. So it's, we, are, we are so used to talking about the international system. I would like to ask people to think about multiple systems, a multiplex system that exists uh, around various regions anchored on uh, great civilizations uh, that you know are, are in ebb and flow. So sometimes they, they are very powerful. Other times um, they can almost uh, become too passive or even go out of business entirely and and uh, 
expire. Um, I mean, for example, a lot of the non-Western world during the colonial times um, was traditionally inert. Um, China in the, uh, you know, loves to talk about the two centuries of, of humiliation. So um, this is, I think, what we need to um, focus on and, and understand that our, our perspective, our image, our picture uh, that, we, that we present about the world is something that is a bit uh, complicated uh, by our uh, original predispo predisposition, cognitive bias, uh, epistemological framing that sees everything as you know one and wants to create a one ordered uniform uh, understanding uh, impose that on top of that world. Um, I'll stop there. So this is very interesting because uh, as someone who I, I like the fact that you have a very philosophical way of looking at even geopolitics. Uh, I think uh, a lot of times geopolitics is laced with uh, just uh, now and then issues and they don't look at the core uh, of uh, of the nation. So this is what, uh, in Sanskrit, we have this word called chitti. It's the essence. So the essence of the way, uh, I would not say American foreign policy. I just think it is Western foreign policy. Before America, it was the British foreign policy. And then the Americans just took it and I think ran it on steroids. Uh, and it, there is a certain way the American mind works. To, to say it in civilizational terms, I think we can, you, you can speak of an Anglo-Spheric foreign policy. Uh, whether it's it's the you know whether it's Britain that was leading in the past or it's the United States that's leading today, um, it, 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 the, the worldview that you're talking about is very Anglo-centric. So what what I was trying to say is not just Anglo-centric; it is also monopolistic. It is it is monopolistic in the sense that it divides the world into the believers and the disbelievers. It's a very unique mind that has created current foreign policy, and which is why I, when we were talking about it offline, I said a lot of American foreign policy or Western foreign policy is actually derived from that very monotheistic, monopolistic, monotheistic blind spot where it looks the world in a uh, certain way and then you couple that with uh, the savior complex where you know i need to go and save people i don't know why but they need to save people and uh, the frontier mentality so so you have the savior complex the frontier men mentality so i'll give you a story right for a i'm a kid who was born and raised in a hindu household we don't have a proselytizing culture we don't proselytize we is it barred? No. But do we do it? No. So when I went to America and people started trying to save me uh, from going to hell, I found it so weird I, at a personal level. I was like, why am I going to hell? I did not even know that. So, that, so And then I started observing American foreign policy or the Anglospheric foreign policy. And it's always around there. They seek a clash. Then they try to fix the clash and, and it stems from this deep uh, discomfort they have with how can you tolerate that? So so do you think the what you call the American weaponization, do you think that weaponization stems from that deep difference anxiety that they have? Um, I would say um, there is, we, we know all, all about the... Uh, History is, is filled with lessons about the problems, the pathologies, the dangers of 
overreach, overextension, hubris, arrogance. Um, and as, as a society overreaches, um, it depletes itself, it, it depletes its spiritual energies, and it sort of um, ends up uh, forgetting the center, forgetting itself, and uh, it sort of uh, loses in the long run. Um, I would say that the the sort of what I call the Anglospheric uh, sort of model of foreign policy is um, there is a kind of uh, especially in the American form it, it takes an ex exceptionalist understanding and that exceptionalism has even if everyone who leads foreign policy in the United States or Great Britain today is uh, is either agnostic or an atheist or not or, or non-believer. Uh, there are underlying sort of uh, factors, uh, sort of re religious, um, uh, a, re a religious sort of uh, psychology that undergirds it, and it sort of comes with we are the chosen people. And again, this is like this comes from a long, long, uh, many decades of history in a sense that it's embedded into the. The subliminal forms of the of the civilization or of the culture. Um, it's not very conscious. Uh, I don't I don't doubt the good intentions of uh, many um, many friends and colleagues uh, uh, who who believe that they are making the world a better place. But what they do not uh, are not conscious of is is how much they have internalized that sense of. Uh, an almost an Abrahamic sense of mission um, that, that is shared in Islam, it's shared in um, certainly in Christianity, uh, a sense of chosenness um, that is globalized. And so we are the chosen people of for the world. We are the um, we you know, and therefore we represent all that's good and holy. Before it used to be God, now we can just call it democracy liberalism, freedom, and we are fighting against the other, uh, which, you know, in, a, in an ex earlier exceptionalist form, look different, um, was the uncivilized barbers of different civilizations, but now looks ideologically different, politically different. It doesn't believe in our same system. And then forcing them, uh, forcing our view of the world upon them. And imagining that we are so enlightened that they, are therefore in some ways deplorable or barbaric for not understanding how great our system is and how and for not internalizing it the way that we have. And uh, so we, we don't see it, America does not see it as, a, you know, as a messianic project or as crusade or as a, a proselytization, but that's what it is. Um, and uh, it's sort of, and, and this is what sort of makes we talked about, you know, you mentioned how most people don't talk about the philosophical, the psychological, the theological under, underpinnings of geopolitics. My realism is not unaware of the uh, of the importance of the material, of the physical, you know, parts of geopolitics. It's just I believe that uh, geopolitics always is local and regional. When you move beyond the regional and the local. You're, you're now entering the realm of ideology, theology, psychology, 
and ultimately ontology. So I call ontological security versus physical security. Um, so what does that mean? Um, our physical security is obvious if you have a, uh, which is which happens at the level of the region, right? For example, there is a there there are um, you know regional security conflicts between countries in the Eastern Europe, um, such as obviously Ukraine, but also Poland and others with Russia. That, that's a that's a physical sense of insecurity. Uh, whether or not we believe that Russia will actually invade Poland or not is irrelevant. There is there, there's a lot of history and regional sort of uh, um, pathways that show that this is uh, that this could be very real for them, and justifiably so. Then you have um, then you have a set, then we have to talk about sort of how you perceive your identity, your security identity. Now, for for smaller countries in the borderlands like uh, Ukraine like uh, you know baltic states for example these are i'm making examples that are relevant today but there, you can find many different examples in different regions of the world as well uh, taiwan would be another one but you know for for these kinds of uh, uh crossroads uh states um it, you know their sense of what our security um, our, our insecurity is the physical and the ontological matches so they have a very coherent sense of what they need to do. But the further you get from the region um, and you get to the hyperpower or superpower or great power um, politics, and a great power is defined by the fact that it can actually exercise power, project force in other regions uh, of the world to counter other civilizations. So Russia, having basically failed in some ways in in um in if it ultimately doesn't fail in ukraine and get, gets what it wants regionally russia has showed itself to be to not be a global power russia is a middle power it cannot go in, around the world it, it has trouble in ukraine so it cannot it definitely cannot go in the middle of africa and, and wage a war right that's what we mean um but great powers let's say the united states even though it's not a superpower anymore, it remains a great power, uh, perhaps a more insecure great power, which becomes, uh, you know, high, sort of hyper-reflexive in some ways. But um, the United States is a great power because it can, it, it, it is uh, interjecting in other regions, interferes in other things, and has turned Ukraine into a proxy war for itself versus Russia. So um, the question is, um, is our sense of physical security in America, does that match our ontological insecurity? And um, that's definitely not the case. There is, America is not threatened by Russia. America is oceans away. We have a stopping power of water. Uh, not, neither Russia nor China have ever threatened uh, the United States, in its, even in its Western hemisphere, let alone in its closer, uh, closer home. So there is no real fundamental vital national security issue. The term national security, by the way, itself is an ideological term, but we can get into that later. Um, but the conception of physical security um, and interests are not warranted here. So why is the United States so involved in expanding NATO, in, um, in sort of interjecting in European affairs, in not 
wanting Europe to pay more, uh, of, share more of a burden of the Western alliance, so-called, but not really wanting Europe to be independent enough to actually wage different kind of foreign policy. So all of these are questionable. Why? Um, there are a lot of reasons for this. We can talk about um, the ideological drivers of US foreign policy. We can talk about the, uh, uh, the sense of, again, which you mentioned, the sense of sort of uh, messianism or you know, proselytization. We can talk about um, uh, just the, the, the faulty, I think, uh, offensive realist mindset that uh, at the end of the day, superpowers will uh, fight to dominate the entire world. So we need to be uh, effectively preempt the other to do that. That's an argument that will probably take uh, America to bring a war with China. Uh, so all of those things but have been reasons. But I think the ultimate fundamental reason that undergirds this is a sense of deep ontological insecurity about our role in the world. Uh, it, it means that uh, we have generations of uh, elites, uh, of uh, foreign policy practitioners who are embedded into the institutions uh, that was created by the Cold War. They're bred into that uh, world. They thought history has ended. Uh, they thought unipolarity was here to stay. And now that it's almost, you know, I think most would agree that it's proven that we live in a multipolar world, at least unipolar, unipolarity is over. There is a deep sense of ontological insecurity. There is a deep sense of what is our identity. Ontology is tied with the problem of meaning and identity in the modern world. And the same way that you and I might have a question of what is our identity and what are we doing, uh, nations and civilizations can have identity crises as well. And so the ontological crisis for when, when a superpower has an ontological crisis, uh, that could be very dangerous for the world. Fair enough. Now, I want to read something uh, from your essay in Unheard, where you say by using NATO enlargement to weaken the old power centers in Europe that might have occasionally stood up to it, such as in the run up to the invasion of Iraq. Washington ensured a more compliant Europe in the short term. Now, if I was to use this particular quote, and I was to use this in the context of the Russia-Ukraine conflict, now wouldn't you say that if Ukraine was a part of NATO, it would have actually been better off in that sense that if Russia would have uh, invaded uh, uh, Ukraine when it was a part of NATO, it was basically against the entire Anglosphere and the entire Western bloc, and there would have been a direct conflict and they would have been much better off. So in that sense, has an America making all these other European power centers weaker in that sense has actually benefited them by giving them this... Um, guarantee of protection because uh, at the end of the day if they were to individually take on uh, to use your analogy a middle power like Russia they would not be militarily as capable as compared to let's say the entire NATO bloc well I mean of course that's the case that uh, that the uh, that if America was to engage in uh in a war with a middle power, America is a powerful state, and that could be, but that could be catastrophic because usually middle powers, sometimes middle powers, but, but you know, uh, in this case, in the case of Russia, uh, they have they have uh, nuclear weapons, right? So that that could be a nuclear Armageddon waiting to happen. So uh, no, I don't I don't think it actually makes uh, countries safer. First of all, middle powers are 
are natural. Middle powers are tied to regions, tied to, 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 to a geography, to geopolitics of a specific locality, which means that they have lived together all the time. So uh, in our analysis, Germany, is, um, Germany and France are both middle powers. And combined, they'll be a very powerful middle power, which uh, is the whether it's institutionalized in terms of the EU or it's not, uh, it's just a, just a security alliance independent of NATO, it will be powerful enough and it will have nuclear weapons like uh, from the uh, French arsenal to, uh, to actually um, counter any real threat that's um, presented to it by Russia. The question is, um, did the Europeans actually want to antagonize Russia into, uh, into a war? Now, they, they did not. They actually, the middle powers, in many ways, they compete, but they also work together because um, they are effectively in the same kind of uh, gradation of power. So, they, uh, you know, Germany uh, benefits from, or uh, benefited until now from Russian gas. Um, and Russia benefits from selling things to Germany, uh, selling natural resources to Germany. If, if there was a fundamental um, inimical relationship between the two, they shouldn't have traded, but they do. And the EU uh, was was also um, really trying its best to even include, think about what happened when the Barstow Pact sort of uh, disappeared, right? There were efforts to even include, uh, there were suggestions to even include Russia in NATO. So think about how much, uh, how much of, uh, how, I mean, that that proposition is fantasy today. So how further have we gotten of, of, from that uh, picture that existed 30 years ago? So um, if um, if you have an alliance that is not tied to an actual threat that is uh, fundamental and real and could actually threaten all members of the alliance to 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 a large extent equal uh, in terms of physical security, uh, then you have a very, uh, then that alliance is more like a, uh, is less of a security alliance and more like a multinational organization. Um, and that's what NATO has become. So I do not, I mean, I do not believe for a second, actually that would have been a great uh, thought experiment, but had Ukraine somehow uh, already become part of uh, NATO. NATO would have been the other argument. There, there are two. There are two scenarios that we can run. One is Russia would not have uh, attacked NATO because it would trigger the entire alliance into into action. The other question is whether the uh, most of the world would be prepared to go to nuclear war. And make no mistake about it, that would be a nuclear war with Russia over Ukraine. So a lot of when you when you enlarge alliances to countries that cannot contribute as much to the alliance security in terms of the uh, in terms of power and resources and material benefit, then you're actually endangering the viability and the longevity of the alliance itself. Now, what is Ukraine today and what are these small states today deemed to contribute? And this is very sad to say, manpower. They are being butchered in their own country because of policies that to some extent they did not themselves direct. Um, but also they have been, they have been uh, when they, they have conflated um, 
uh, with the West on this uh, position because they have deep uh, um, physical insecurity, which is, you know, that comes from their experience. So they're more prone to, to, to actually deal, uh, to actually try to create um, a war that expands so that more, other, more powerful countries can get involved in that. And that's why, that, that's why these alliances or these allies, uh, these partners, are, I've called them uh, with David Polanski, Trojan allies, in a way that they are, they, they, their entire existence depends on, uh, and that was another piece actually I did for uh, Unheard previous to this one, which is their entire existence, and it's, it's quite rational by the way, but their entire existence is predicated, their entire security uh, uh, mindset depends on getting, as you said, NATO and Western powers involved in the war because they're being decimated. Uh, in the long term, they, this is a small country that cannot withstand, as you said. Them. These are real um, uh, you know, issues. This is not, um, we're not only dealing in the realm of ideology, but ideology can make us forget the huge human cost and toll of, of, of this war. And so I think that actually I'm a realist and uh, I think uh, morality should take second stage to realist analysis of foreign policy. But as a, but, but if you are a moralist, it is incumbent upon you to end this war as soon as possible um, because the ultimate outcome will not change given the historical um, rigidities uh, that exist uh, in such a regional conflict. So I have a fundamental question over here. Somewhere in, in your essay, again, you say Europe thus finds, as it struggles to resolve the Russia question, Europe thus finds, it's, thus finds itself to having to re-examine its identity as a distinct cultural and geopolitical realm, recalibrate its proper boundaries and discover its strategic orientation and voice vis-a-vis -vis a collective West premised on US-led Atlanticism. It is here that the continent's long history might serve as a guide. Again, I find this, I might personally agree with this, but I have to see my job in this podcast is to ask you questions that may not necessarily be in agreement with this worldview. Because a lot of people might come back to you and say, but the collective West is actually a homogenous group. While what you're saying is, and which is something that I agree with you, because I can understand the civilizational state perspective as I'm Indian. So I get the civilizational state perspective. So how is the collective European identity distinctly different from a collective Western identity? And how does it benefit Europe by disengaging itself from the collective Western identity, which is kind of led by the Americans? Um, the, the proof was in the pudding of your last statement. A European identity so long as it's tied to the Western identity, will be subjected to American primacy and leadership and uh, priorities. So a European identity, uh, which is which is uh, tied uh, rhetorically, ideologically, and institutionally through NATO uh, and other um, mechanisms, to America makes it uh, just a cog in the American machine, essentially. Uh, do what we eff effectively ask or believe should be done. Um, and Europe has, uh, has a problem there. What is Europe? Does Europe include Russia? Does Europe include Great Britain? Does Europe include um, 
Does the European security order include Poland? Um, because, you know, originally it didn't, right? Because they were west of the uh, Iron Curtain. Um, the, 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 the Europe, the Western Europe that the uh, that Eisenhower and, and de Gaulle uh, conceived uh, what was effectively the Western Europe that was our partner and ally. And we, uh, you know, realists, uh, classical realists uh, thought that it can be independent and do its own thing because they had still experienced the world where America wasn't. You know, prior to World War II, America was still not uh, telling every country what to do. Um, so they had they had lived in that world, and so they understood uh, a more they had a more civilizational understanding of Europe. I would say, um, that, I mean that's a that's a claim that uh, I would make. Uh, you know, it's just it's obviously a speculation. But um, so yeah, so I do believe that Europe as it's conceived today, um, it's highly institutionalized, um, made up of various uh, effectively national districts. Um, and um, it, it, it is not clear exactly what it means, um, and it needs to figure out what, 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 what it is that it is representing. Now, the problem is that as NATO has expanded, also the EU has expanded east. Now, some of the countries that have come uh, and become members uh, of, of both NATO and the EU, Hungary, for example, um, are towing a very uh, intelligent line. They are not, they're understanding that they are both as a nation state, but also as a, have a, have a unique background of, of having, you know, being a part of the Austro-Hungarian empire, but also being, uh, uh, you know, part of uh, the, uh, the the Soviet bloc for a while. So so they they know uh, what, the, what the two world uh, views have been and one could argue that Hungary could have been, uh, given its sort of uh, ties with Central and Western Europe, uh, uh, you know, the greatest accolade for um, uh, the greatest champion of a of a of a you know just uh, Western order against Russia and against everybody else, right? But it doesn't do that. Why? Because it requires a certain prudence. Because if, uh, you know, there are countries that can actually balance, they, try, they can try to balance between these two or three blocks. So, uh, so Hungary is, is member, I think is the only country that is a member of all these, uh, effectively all these blocks. It's, it has, uh, it has uh, uh, diplomatic relations uh, which, with, with Russia and with Putin that doesn't antagonize Russia. It, it is a member of the Visegrad. Uh, it is, uh, which is, you know, the, essentially Poland and Polish centric. It is also a member of uh, uh, NATO uh, and is a member of the EU. So there are ways to not have, as you said, this kind of monopolistic uh, once, you know, black and white thinking and then just, you know, all these things can co coexist. But I think the Western paradigm as such, and here I'm using the Western in terms of the, uh, the secularized version of the Christian thinking that uh, that permeates it, um, it makes has a Manichaean framing that makes it very difficult to move beyond um, uh, to move beyond the other and and its and its position as the enemy. So we need to know where we are. We're either on the side of the good or the or the evil. We can be on the side of all goods and all evils. 
And uh, so it's sort of like, you know, make it clear. Are you with us or against us? As, as, uh, as George W. Bush used to say. This is still, this, we are still living in the world of George W. Bush because we never left it. And George W. Bush was living in the world of Reagan because he didn't leave it. Even as um, geopolitical and uh, structural uh, uh, situations and, and uh, uh, system, they're changing and shifting. So we live in a very different geopolitical and strategic world, but our sense, our ontological framing of, of the world around us, our epistemological understanding of IR itself is predicated on, on, on creating a world for us that doesn't actually exist. And so we are there to defend the liberal international order. What, what does that mean? Um, you know, it, we, we need to be, I think, more uh, critical and creative. Um, living in a multipolar world, living in a polycentric world, where, which is, you know, we are definitely moving in that uh, direction. 85% of the world does not live in the West proper. If you include Japan, that would be 88%. Um, this is the, the 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 story of the 21st century will be the story of civilizations, not understood in necessarily in Huntingtonian terms. And I would you know I would say that he even his understanding of clash of civilizations had a, a nice uh, um, uh, question mark around it because he too did not want. He was talking. He was urging for prudence, but but the but the the framing of it itself was sort of. Uh, civilizations all want to dominate. But actually, civilizations, I would argue, do not want to dominate. The multipolarity is here to stay. And great powers have a choice. They can either deal with all these middle powers and, and you know, tr try to create a more stable um, engagement, a more stable modus vivendi, or they can uh, continue to uh, believe themselves to be the gods uh, of the system and ask others uh, to live in their image, to have their kinds of values and value systems, their belief systems, their political system, um, which culminates in what we have called the, the woke imperium, uh, which is another another banner for um, uh, American soft imperialism. Uh, so all of these things um, is unsustainable. Now, the, when it comes to Europe, Europe needs to understand what you know. What was its historic role and its historic? What, what was its history um, prior to World War II? Prior to World War One, uh, you know, with the with the with the fall of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War, there was an opportunity for Europe to try to rediscover that question. But that has been that question has been decentered and pushed aside. By um, uh, by many for many reasons, one of them is are the Europeans themselves. I'm not America bashing. I don't think this is all America's fault at all. I think Europeans are themselves are to blame. But these are uh, leaders in different um, political and political bodies and cultural contexts, which have in, which internalize certain things. A lot of them are not realist uh, in their orientation, but idealistic. Or, or, or steeped in idealism, um, a very dreamy understanding of history. 
that believes history has ended or has culminated in a certain thing, and which means that you know Europe is not uh, is not prepared. Uh, it's not, but it's not even reflexive enough yet to know what Europe is, itself means outside of even the European Union um, in terms of security questions. Uh, so the, and that is that is Macron's position. So the most sort of uh, the most um, uh, let's say hard-nosed positions uh, on European security comes historically from France. But France has a history of trying to have an independent tack and and dominant European security affairs. Which now it wants to do through the EU, but it's still there. sort of the EU and, and France sort of national interests are sort of like coming together in this sort of amalgamation. But it's not clear that is that is how other countries in the EU, as the EU has expanded, will see the world. Poland will increasingly want a very different kind of role for itself, and Poland, because of uh, the centrality um, of NATO in the mindsets of all Europeans. Um, Poland gets a lot of support from America, and America and Polish sort of access helps Poland uh, in the EU, gives it more influence. So there is a lot of the, these kinds of dynamics. This is not a monolithic picture, and uh, um, a lot of uh, leaders, both in uh, both in Europe and in America, like things to just stay as they were. Weren't they simpler? Wasn't Cold War in some ways simpler times for these people? It was. Uh, it was just, you know, very stable. We hated them; they hated us. It was perfectly framed for, uh, for a sort of, a, as you, as you said, I think, uh, a monotheistic-inspired foreign policy. Uh, it, you just need to have an evil and another, and you can, you know, you can, you can organize. You can create a national identity around that, and especially in a world where uh, traditional, um, localized uh, forms of belonging and meaning, what we can call vaccination. Uh, that, that's tied to family, that's tied to locality, that's tied to particularity. All of those are either gone or weakening. Um, this sense of a national project around sort of world, uh, you know, redemption uh, from some sort of a, a evil satanic threats could be very um, rewarding uh, psychologically. Could, could be uh, a sort of a uh, could be a Euphoric, it could be an endorphin, right? But it is not. Uh, it is not consistent with the changes in the uh, structural system, in the international uh, system and its structure. Right. There are so many things I have to ask you about this. So two, three things. First of all, let us assume a hypothetical scenario. America is decoupled from uh, Europe. So the collective West identity now has different sub-identities and those sub-identities are strong. Now, people would say uh, nature abhors vacuum. So even in this collective European identity, somebody is going to take the lead role and they are going to subsume other sub-identities, let's say the Germans or the French might take a far greater role and it still may not uh, come up in the ideal collective role. Two, nature abhors vacuum. If America vacates this role of the world policeman, somebody is going to come up and take it and uh, wait till the Russians and the Chinese take it. You are not going to like it. What do you say to that? Well, first I'll start with number two in the sense that uh, th that that proposition that if we are not actively uh, you know, involved uh, in, in a militaristic posture around the world, uh, that this makes countries go and dominate the world, that, that is preposterous. Uh, I think that is an illusion that comes from uh, 
the very thing that we have been discussing for the past uh, 50 or so minutes. It is a it is a world centric view, and uh, which which decenters regions and thinks that, for example, if a country, if a, if a civilizational power is trying to uh, effectively uh, work around its own regions and uh, throw its weight around, let's say, even, uh, to be more cynical. Um, in, in, in that region, that means that it can then come and, and you know, control the, the, the world and the world affairs. That, that is something that comes from uh, the exceptional history of American rise to power, uh, which had a globalist mission from the beginning. If you do not have a world picture, and therefore you don't see the, everything in global and globalist terms, you're a different kind of uh, understanding about the world. So this idea that um, you know we leave Afghanistan, it's going to be done. You know, this is not there. Are, there are other, and this is the whole point of mineral powers. There are all these other uh, regionally tied states that have deep interests in the stability of their own regions, and uh, this is all good and fine uh, because they are. There are not, there's not going to be a physical threat uh, to the United States. Um, we can, we can definitely, uh, we should and should definitely defend ourselves if any country uh, comes even close to uh, Puerto Rico or Hawaii. Um, but this is not, uh, this is not what we're talking about. This is this idea of there's this sort of ephemeral thing called the world and it, it, it is waiting to be dominated like a maiden by you know like uh, uh, Machiavelli has this uh, has this phrase right the well, Fortuna is a woman that uh, allows itself to be dominated by the bull um, we have this same kind of picture it's just the world is the maiden that's waiting to be dominated by the by our evil twins this is not this is this is fantasy this is a storytelling this is not um, this is not how actual um, uh, foreign policy and, and uh, geopolitics uh, works. The, and I will also say, again, I understand where this mentality comes from. It has deep, um, uh, you know, Chris, it has deep theological and also academic uh, backgrounds uh, in sort of in the in utilitarian thinking. It, it's just steeped in Western philosophy. Um, and then, it, and this, such a mentality has also then been historically uh, realized through uh, both the bipolar moment and the unipolar moment. So, but I would tell you that this was an aberration, that the moment, the 200 years of, let's say, uh, Anglo-spheric domination of world affairs was an aberration. Uh, the world actually moves, the equilibrium is a, is a civilizationally uh, complex, regionally oriented world. Now, this takes me to your first question. And it would perhaps make my uh, realist uh, credentials or realist uh, uh, language sort of come to the fore. The realist fact of the matter is that within these regions, there are going to be sort of, uh, there are going to be regional premise. There is going to be a regional premise. And what we call middle powers are effectively these uh, regionally first, regionally prime, uh, regional primers, let's say. 
Um, they are the anchors of the regions. They are civilizationally uh, powerful, which is what allows them to actually have pull. They understand their own history, geography, and everything else. But they're also materially capable, materially, uh, and, and, uh, they have the resources uh, that can actually uh, subdue, if need be, places around them, uh, in their immediate surrounding, in their immediate neighborhood. Which means that, for example, yes, um, you know, uh, these these the civilizational states will have more of a control, more of a say over smaller countries around them. Um, France and Germany will have more pull. Russia will have more pull over Belarus. Um, you know, uh, and, and we can go you know further. You know, China will have uh, uh, pull around its immediate neighborhood. Japan. Well, uh, is it also a middle power which will have, uh, you know, uh, it's interesting because it's the only middle power which is only a, which is an island. Um, so, you know, but these these countries um, hold uh, primacy in their specific regions that surrounds them. And if they want to move beyond that, so let's say China wants to move beyond its immediacy to the realms of another middle power, getting into conflict, let's say, with Japan. And historically, this happens. Middle powers fight many times. But that's, but that's the normal breaking point. You know, that's when they stop. They, they are able to stop one another. Uh, when they are not, um, they, they go, you know, things become very different because then other countries have to then uh, step in because, it, you know, it makes it very different. Um, so, a history of, of, let's say, East Asia shows, for example, that Japan and China have fought many wars, and there's a lot of, there was historically a lot of enmity between them because of this. Now, if there is any such a problem, uh, then, then let's say uh, the United States wants to get involved on, on behalf of Japan, that would be a very different proposition than the United States getting involved on behalf of Taiwan. I want to make that clear. And also, um, because so far as these countries are middle powers, they are they are uh, they are able to uh, have enough of a, a push and pull to be able to keep each other in balance. There is a balance of power between middle powers. If one country becomes too powerful to be a middle power, that um, becomes a great power, meaning that it can actually move beyond its regions and has the interest or has the um, drivers, has that um, has that you know, ontological insecurity, uh, to use what the phrase that I used earlier, to have that ideology, essentially, to want to go somewhere else. Because a lot of countries also do not want to go to different regions. Um, if it wants to do that as a great power, it can uh, dominate its, the immediate middle power around it that's closest to it. But then other middle powers immediately will be very uh, uh, hesitant. Uh, and come together to defend it. So this, this is a more classical understanding of balance of power than I'm relying on. Uh, yes, middle powers will come together to, uh, to defend themselves from excursions and domination by one middle power going too far to, into their regions. The past experience, the past 200 years, the aberration of the past 200 years has uh, made things very different has made it so we forget this. We forget how the system actually works. We forget its sort of internal laws. 
um, the natural sort of order of it, and then we think uh, of, of things that we are trying to impose on it. Um, so the result also has been that um, smaller nation states that have been created over the past uh, uh, 200 years or have come out of this system um, as a modern nation state see it to their benefit to fight against the middle powers that's around them because middle powers have historically dominated those, re those small uh, pockets of regions that have existed. So what do they do? They uh, court and create a very, very um, uh, mutualistic um, relationship with, um, with, with the great power that tends to want to interject in the regions, in this case, the United States. And so they tend to become that kind of Trojan ally that I spoke about earlier. So it's, it's, it's a very complicated picture according to where you belong in the gradation. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, there's a question of power uh, asymmetry. And if you have more power, you get certain benefits. But it does not mean that um, you can just dominate and become a global hegemon. That is the fantasy that I'm talking about, the global hegemony. You can have regional hegemons, and you have had many of them. But global hegemony, the system itself rejects it uh, in the sense that if you keep moving towards global hegemony, you will break. Um, even, even if you are even in a small, uh, you know, uh, relatively limited setting of, let's say, the Alexander the Great example, who went uh, and or came all the way to India. That's a portion of the world. It's not the entire world, but even that kind of hegemony only lasted, uh, you know, until uh, you know, I think less than ten years, um, until until Alexander himself died, and then it was divided into the, the different regions. So the world itself actually abhors a global hegemon, not um, a vacuum, because a vacuum doesn't has never existed so far as we live in the world. One last question. I have to ask this follow-up to your uh, to your thoughts. So what would you tell those people who say the global hegemon could be problematic, but in the case of the United States of America, it's actually a very good global hegemon because it, it has led to, I'm just stating the argument, more world peace. I'm just stating the argument. It has led to more stability because if you have many middle powers jostling with each other, it could uh, lead to more more skirmishes, more regional battles, more regional conflicts, and we just end up in a mess where a lot more people are fighting. Right now, everybody's like, America can interfere and tell everybody to shut up. That, um, that comes from that uh, original sort of... Um ideological um, posture that we have talked about. It comes from the sense of American exceptionalism, as if somehow our global hegemony would be different from the hegemonies that came before. And um, that's, that's more religious thought. That's more theology than it is statecraft. Um, the world has not been better off uh, through American uh, interference around the world. It has created multiple uh, I mean, first of all, America has created multiple wars around the world, um, and this is, you know, this is something that I think it's not. Uh, we cannot <laughs> cannot easily sugarcoat it. 
uh, whether it's Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, but also different places, right? I mean, uh, the United States uses its, its, its power, its pull to interject in, uh, in again, regional affairs uh, in Europe. Uh, think about the wars in, in Yugoslavia, in uh, you know, intervention in, in Kosovo, um, which actually I would uh, call as one of the, I think if you uh, look at the trajectory of Putin's thought, that was the moment that he became uh, radicalized in some ways against the United States. So these things have consequences. Um, and I would also say, I am a firm believer that regional, uh, regional uh, civilizational states, even as regional hegemons, can understand each other. Uh, they, because they are, they are essentially, they're, they're arm wrestling, but they're coming at it from similar levels of strength. No one can really dominate the other one. So that creates a kind of status quo, right? What changes is when an outside power interjects into their affairs using the um, either its own military, but now increasingly what it has learned is, 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 is that it can use in a very cynical way the armies or the population of smaller countries that have a deep ontological and physical insecurity in the region in the regions. So what happens if, if America steps back? Not a vacuum. You can look at this in terms of uh, China, Saudi, and Iranian relations. That um, uh, was the recent phenomenon. A lot of people would call it sort of an example of Chinese um, moving to sort of uh, global hegemony. That's preposterous. What happened is, as we know, Iran and Saudi Arabia really have had deep historical um, Problems with one another. There have been enemies in many ways in different uh, and and that and that became uh, even more powerful with the Iranian Islamic Shiite revolution in '79, which was both a populistic revolution and an, a Shiite revolution, which meant that it was both anti the monarchical uh, system in uh, Saudi Arabia as well as against the, the dominant Salafi ideology at the time. So these two countries really uh, are not uh, friends, and they despite uh, despise one another historically. What happened? How is it that they're able to find ways to talk and everything else? Because the reality of power interjected, and and and, and as soon as America stopped uh, really pushing uh, one side, basically putting its thumb and finger on one side of the scale, this is a scale. When you're talking about nominal powers, when you put your thumb on one side, you mean that you make the other one belligerent, and you 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 destabilize the, the, the historical geopolitical basis. With America retreating, China had a choice; it could put its finger, let's say, on uh, in on the Iranian side, but China just wants to do business. It has learned that from America. So it says, how do we? do business with one another so that we're all prosperous. This is what actually America's promise used to be, right? Um, and okay, let's let's just um, all coexist, find a way to coexist. As and, and both of you countries, both of you two, I mean, you're not great powers like we are, China would say, but both of you are 
have old histories. Both of you have lived in this region for a long time, and both of you have a relative power, a relative power and strength. So let's find a way so that we can coexist. That modus vivendi uh, uh, strategy, that uh, strategic empathy, allows for uh, for for a much more stable Middle East in a way. And also, I would say. Uh, another another thing that is less geopolitical, but not not less important, is that America has uh, has defended its unique position, its you know world peace, uh, its uh, its beneficent nature, by saying that it believes in certain values and that those values are universal. This is increasingly threatening to every part of the world: India, Brazil, Mexico. And its historic um, junior partners in other places. So, for example, Saudi Arabia relied on the United States to strengthen itself against Iran. It was kind of like trying to uh, tip the scale to its favor, right? But it is increasingly getting threatened by the woke uh, uh, ideology that emanates from U.S. Uh, State Department. And the United States doesn't need to be that way. Our values, our problems, our internal conflicts are ours. And if we are truly democratic, we would allow for our population to figure it out before saying that every other country has to do certain things. Before moving around, uh, you know, pushing for, um, you know, gay rights in Japan by the U.S. Embassy. What right does the U.S. Embassy have to push these values on a different civilization? And this is, this is happening with our allies, let alone our, our enemies. Um, so it will push other countries towards either, um, you know, a marriage of convenience. This is not, I mean, Russia and Iran, for example, they're, you know, they're helping each other in Ukraine and Syria. They have been historical enemies as middle powers or as when Russia became a great power, it was devastating to Iran, right? This is exactly one of those examples. Russia became a great power, Iran did not, uh, and it was devastating. But they are now, so they have this uh, deep, uh, you know, historical antipathy. How are they working together? Because they know that, they, that, that, that there is something bigger at stake uh, because of the universalism of, of this quote-unquote collective West, even if that universalism emanates from Washington itself and is just reflected by and rubber-stamped by countries in the Anglosphere that want to feel as important. Um, such as uh, Canada um, and, and Britain, or by the um, specific sort of liberal internationalist ruling class that has been bred since, the, since World War II and during the Cold War in Western Europe. So these are uh, even, you know, it's interesting because a lot of these countries that geopolitically are drawn so much towards the United States, such as Poland, such as, um, you know, Saudi Arabia, such as, uh, uh, you know, the list goes on and on. They are um, they're nationalistic because they they are modern states, um, and they are very deeply conservative places. They don't like the ideological dimensions of U.S. foreign policy, so they are stuck in a limbo. Now it depends. Uh, for 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 now, Russia is a, more of an existential threat to Poland. Uh, so Poland might, uh, and Poland is useful to the United States. So the ideological sort of the 
war about uh, the right value system gets sidelined. But when things calm down, as in the uh, you you know uh, Perso-Arabic conflict, um, America and its ideology becomes front and center because uh, there's not an existential war happening effectively between Iran and, and, and Saudi Arabia. They were, they were engaged, the, the two of them, as regional powers uh, in various uh, proxy wars in their own region. So again, what we see globally is always a mirror image of what we see in regions. Among middle powers. Global powers just, um, uh, once they try to interject themselves globally, they basically throw their weight around, no matter, no matter the justification, whether it's for uh, Christian causes, for neoconservatism, for woke ideology, it destabilizes the world, it creates a hubristic, uh, ruling class, it dis dis distances the, the ruling class from its own people, it uh, it just becomes un unsustainable, and it creates real dangers, such as a real uh, prospect of a nuclear exchange, a nuclear um, ar ar you know, Armageddon happening over a conflict between Russia and Ukraine that can engulf the entire world. So, uh, no, U.S. Uh, power has not been force for good uh, for a long time uh, since it believed that it can tip the scale and be the global power and again this was not this was not America today is not the America of George Kennedy or even Eisenhower I mean Eisenhower notoriously got fooled by the Brit Brits and, and interfered in the uh, you know in various uh, uh, you know in various uh, other countries, especially uh, in, in Iran, uh, with the coup um, against uh, Mossadegh. But, but the belief was that the problem with, let's say, communism, with um, Marxism, Russian Marxism, was, was its universalism was this ideology, was the fact that it wants to dominate the world. And we will help others uh, in a sort of non-aligned movement against the, uh, against the Soviets. But we have become, the, uh, in, in practical terms, like the Soviets. We have become a, a vassal for an ideology, except we have the world's greatest military. And that is a very uh, frightening prospect, especially as we get more and more insecure about our own role and place in the world. Um, but again, we fought universalism um, against both, I would, I would argue against both uh, the, the, the Nazis uh, who wanted to have a universal kind of uh, empire uh, if, if racialized, and also against the Soviets, who wanted to have a very uh, ideological and universal kind of empire. Um, so, but we had the antecedents of, a, of universalist thinkings in our own uh, in our own uh, libraries, in our own books, in our own uh, closets, and that came out and made us see the world in very ideological, highly partisan, highly Manichaean terms, um, 
And that is not, I think, a sustainable position. So before we wrap up, Arta, could you, let's say, tell everybody if they wanted to check out more of your work or, or the work of the Institute of uh, for Peace and Diplomacy, what is the best way to do that? Yeah, so um, um, first of all, our, our website uh, for IPD Institute for Peace and Diplomacy is peacediplomacy.org. If you can put that in uh, as well for people to see is peacediplomacy.org. Um, I would also, um, you know, and, and again, uh, we are a restraint-oriented realist uh, uh, think tank in, in the United States and, and Canada, which we're thinking about what the what these sort of ideological what, um, the drivers of U.S. foreign policy and, and Anglo-Australian foreign policy might be. We're thinking about the problems of power. We're thinking about the new world order, the changes in the international system. We think about. We have been working a lot on the issue of multipolarity for three, four years now. Um, and uh, we think about we take you know civilization seriously we take middle power seriously we think we want to understand what the new world in actual terms looks like uh and and we uh take a philosophical even approach to make sure that you know this this should be an inter interdisciplinary approach uh it should not be should not be in our own silos uh so i benefited uh, i benefit from various different traditions to enrich and and, and take realism to its uh, original uh, footing that, uh, as it existed in various schools of thought, including in Western uh, schools. Realism precedes the formation of IR. Um, that's one thing I would say. Uh, in terms of a lot of the things that we discussed, um, the the religious element, the theological element, the, the story that America tells itself, I would say that I'm also a founding editor of a magazine called uh, Agon Magazine. Uh, that is www.agonmag.com. And um, this is uh, a, a sort of a scholarly uh, place for the dissident scholars, for the for people who are who want to think provocatively, who don't want to, um, who want to adopt a radically realist position about the world and, and see it, the world as it is and look at the different dimensions of it, not just in terms of foreign policy, but in terms of how is our world changing? And so um, I would uh, urge uh, your uh, listeners, your uh, subscribers to check that out and to check out a, a piece of ours that's coming actually coming out by a U.S. historian, Michael Vallejos, uh, which is about um, the American fixation with uh, almost a theological fixation with, with war and with uh, victory in battle as a cleansing ritual um, and, and the role of um, you know, that kind of monotheistic or, let's say, uh, universalist, exceptionalist thinking in, in U.S. Uh, psychology and U.S. Think, foreign policy thinking. So I think you would benefit uh, a lot based on our conversation from that article as well. That that should be out uh, um, either today or, or before the weekend. And uh, yes, so that's uh, that's uh, I and I have my Twitter. Um, uh, it's uh, at Arta Moini, as you see uh, my name, just the one word, at Arta Moini. Um, and uh, you can find me on Twitter and uh, engage uh, in that way. Great. It was a pleasure talking to you. I I, uh, I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed your, your essay. And then I read your paper, too, on uh, 
the middle powers I, i i can kind of relate to where you come from because i myself am from a background of philosophy so i actually enjoy having these discussions because uh, i don't know why philosophy is mocked so much in this world nowadays philosophers get mocked a lot uh, in the age of uh, science for uh, people forget philosophy is very important and many core issues of our existence are on the basis of philosophy so i i had a great time talking to you and thank you very much for coming thank you so much kushal and yes i mean in a world of reductionism uh, you know through true philosophy which is which should push the boundaries and actually be a holistic creative affair uh, is is uh, is that's a frowned upon but uh, But yeah, I, I mean, I think we should move away from just formalistic philosophy and think about how how philosophy informs real life. But but certainly, I think it's very uh, beneficial to do that. And thank you for allowing the opportunity uh, for me to to uh, you know explore some of these ideas with you. All right, guys, we'll wrap today's discussion up. So once again, I'll remind everyone in the description of the podcast. It doesn't matter if you're watching this on YouTube or you're going to be listening on any of the audio platforms. I will leave the link to Artus' um, Twitter handle. I'll also leave the links to the website of the Institute of Peace and Diplomacy and Agon Magazine. You can go and check their work out over there. Also, please support the Charvak podcast by liking this video, leaving a comment. and subscribing to the charvak podcast youtube channel if you are an audio only listener please leave a review or a rating on spotify itunes google podcast you know where you are and if you can please become a member of the charvak podcast this is a member driven podcast i don't do ad reads for a reason guys i don't want to be anybody's uh, patsy so i retain my independence so once again you can become a member on youtube patreon fanmo wherever you are or visit kushalmehra.com and buy the merchandise i'll see you guys next time until then namaste take care bye